Hello, this is In Conversation from Medical News Today. I'm Dr. Hilary Geit. This month, we'll be talking about IBD, inflammatory bowel disease, the term used for ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. But before we start the show today, I have a favour to ask. Most people who listen to this podcast haven't subscribed or followed us yet. If you click on the subscribe or follow button right now, you'll get a notification every time we release a new episode. That means you're less likely to miss out on future episodes and more people will hear about our great show. Thank you so much and let's get started with this month's podcast. I'm joined on today's show by podcast regular Maria Kahoot. Maria, come stai? <laughs> Sto bene, grazie, Hilary. Ma perché stiamo parlando l'italiano? Why are we speaking Italian? We're talking Italian because I am just back from my amazing holiday to Sicily and Sardinia. <laughs> and these are islands at the heart of the Mediterranean and it's Mediterranean cuisine. I have a really very happy gut from eating locally there. Very nice. So... I'm telling you this because today's episode is all about the gut and what part the gut microbiota has to play in two serious long-term gut conditions called ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. Maria, you chose this topic. What was it that interested you? I was struck by how serious these inflammatory bowel diseases, Crohn's and ulcerative colitis can be and how much they affect people. And while their prevalence in the United States is ostensibly quite low, according to the latest survey data, they affect about 1% of all adults in the United States. That actually means around 2 million people. So in the end, that's quite a high number if you think about it. And there's also evidence that IBD is increasing around the world by around 50% over the last decade. So it's getting more and more serious. There is some variation though in IBD rates across the world. For example, in Sardinia, where you've just been, the prevalence of IBD is only of around 0.2%. So maybe like a fifth of the rate that we see in the United States. And these are actually quite serious conditions that can affect a person severely in the way that they lead their day-to-day life. Can you tell us about the likely outcomes, Hilary? The first thing to say about the outcomes for people with these conditions is that they're changing rapidly. We've now got powerful immunosuppressants and biologics. But what we do know that before those drugs were available in the last 15 or so years, about 90% of people with Crohn's disease would have surgery for that Crohn's disease over their lifetime. And that's because the ulcers in the gut from the disease can break all the way through the gut wall causing real devastation. And for ulcerative colitis, around 25% of people would need to have their colon removed as a result of the disease. Now, these figures are going to be changing as we've got people who've spent most of their time with the disease on the biologics. But what we do know is that when people stop those biologics, about half relapse. So they suppress, they don't cure. Wow, that's really tough. These are really serious conditions, aren't they? So that being said, why don't we jump straight into this discussion and meet today's guests? 
My name is Marcel de Zoete. I'm an associate professor at the Department of Medical Microbiology at the University Medical Center Utrecht, which is in the Netherlands. I'm a trained microbiologist and I study how the microbiota affects health and disease with a focus on IBD. My name is Osha Krajewska. I am a IT business advisor at a large corporate and I was diagnosed with IBD at around age of 14. I'm happy to have a very open and candid conversation. Marcel, can you first explain a little bit about IBD in lay terms? What is it? IBD is a chronic inflammatory disorder. We speak about IBD, but it's mostly two forms of IBD, ulcerative colitis and uh, and Crohn's disease. So it's inflammation of the gut. Inflammation of the gut, exactly, yeah. And while there's definitely overlap between these uh, two variants, there's also very clear distinctions. Crohn's can be anywhere in the intestinal tract from basically mouth to anus, while ulcerative colitis mostly is located in the colon, so the last part of the intestinal tract. So Joshua, can you tell us what form of IBD you have and how it's affected you? Yes, so I've got ulcerative colitis. When I was first diagnosed, I had 75% ulceration, which required hospitalization, and I've had two severe relapses in my life. I've been in remission for six years now, so IBD is affecting my life slightly less. But during my school years, university, life was very much impacted by trying to manage having a chronic illness, which obviously requires frequent treatment, toilet trips, etc., as well as my academic studies and social life. Now, I know you said you're prepared to have a very frank conversation with us. Can you tell us more about those toilet trips? Yeah, so when I have periods of relapsing, although some of these periods have been sort of shut out of my memory, if you like, I think probably due to an element of trauma that was featured in those, but uh, very much bloody stools numerous times a day from early morning to night during nighttime, a lot of urgency, uh, diarrhea-like movements, and still to this day, my morning routine is very much centered around having urgent bowel movements, although much more formed than they used to be when I were having periods of, of relapsing. Um, there are a lot of people who actually have blood in their stool. But when you're talking about blood, you're talking about it. I think this is quite important, actually. It's mixed in, isn't it? It's not just on the paper. It's something that is really quite, you can see the blood. Yes, exactly. So sometimes you can very much see in the stool, as a patient with IBD, you're taught to frequently check your bowel movements. You can indeed see the blood in the stool. It tends to be more of a darker colour. You can obviously, sometimes with more diarrhea-like movements, uh, blood is also coming out. So you can see it in the toilet bowl and, of course, on the toilet paper. Maria. That sounds incredibly painful and incredibly traumatizing to deal with on a daily basis. And you say you're currently in remission, but that it did affect your life in a lot of different ways. Can you tell us a little bit more about how living with a chronic condition like this has affected your day to day life, you know, in school or as you started work? Do you have to plan in advance? Is there something specific that you have to do to make sure you can do your usual work and whatever you need. Yeah, absolutely. I think there are two very distinct periods, right? There's the period where I was severely ill as a young teenager and then as a young adult. And these periods were very categorized by chronic abdominal pain, again, which I've partially forgotten, constant nausea. I remember always having polo mints in my bag because I'm very sad of being sick. So I used to suck on those in class having a paper bag as well with me just in case I I were to vomit, 
chronic headaches, fatigue. I just recall as well, sort of multiple hospital trips weekly, sort of lying in waiting rooms, being unable to properly stand or, or sit up. And of course, the impact that then that this would have on my studies, I think I needed, I was always a very sort of studious student, if you like, but I needed to be much more organized than the average person and kind of work around periods of feeling better and, and feeling weaker. But the general haze and fatigue and just sort of going through life as well, not really knowing what's going to happen, especially as both my relapses were very severe and I almost had to have surgery on both occasions. I think that that mental side as well started to impact me more in my early 20s when I had my last relapse, especially I was abroad at the time in my final year of university. And I think depression is a word that is thrown around way too lightly. But that was the first period in my life where I can say I, I felt depressed. The world was sort of black and white. There was no color. I was crying all the time for I don't know why, for any reason, but just feeling incredibly low. So it's that mental side as well as, as physical. And then I think it required an extra level of dedication to do well. If I look at studying, I needed to be up before 6am to go and have blood tests at laboratories, before going to university at 8 o'clock. All these types of things that an average person wouldn't have to think about. That's exactly it. You were carrying on with your life and it was so difficult. That's what strikes me, how tough it must have been for you. And it's really an invisible condition for everybody else. Not a lot of people, I imagine, would have realized what you were going through as you were carrying on. Exactly. And that's what makes it particularly hard. I remember when I had my last relapse, my economics professor said to my friend whilst I had just been hospitalized, oh, she didn't look ill. And yes, because, you know, I put on some makeup, a bit of blusher or bronzer and I come in smiling. But physically, I'm I'm really struggling to even sit up. And that invisible side of the condition has indeed impacted me in my professional life, especially early on. And that's that's a really tricky part about having IBD, I think. Thank you for sharing all of this. I'm just going to briefly turn to Marcel right now just to ask, do we know what actually causes or triggers IBD? No, I think that's one of the big problems. After all these years of research, we still really don't know. We know many factors that can play a role. So we know the immune system plays a role. Diet can play a role. We know that genetics can play a role. So people may have certain genetic mutations that might contribute to getting IBD. And we think the microbiota, so the bacteria in the intestinal tract, play a role too. But how this all interacts, we really still don't know. We're getting there slowly, but we don't know yet. Just now you mentioned the gut microbiome, and this is part of what you research. Could you tell us a little bit about what you found in your research about the gut microbiome in IBD? Yeah, so we, we studied the gut microbiome, which is the collection of microbes in the intestinal tract. We study that in relationship to various diseases, colorectal cancer, type 2 diabetes, but mainly IBD, because IBD is, I think, the best example of a disease that is affected by intestinal bacteria. The field, I think, has been looking at these bacteria now for about 20 years, and we know really well what is more common in terms of bacteria in patients with IBD versus healthy people. So we know a couple of these bacterial names, but we still really don't know what they do and why these bacteria are associated with IBD. Are they bacteria that other people have and people with IBD have more of them, or are they like a completely different bacteria? It's all, uh, all variants. So basically, some people have more of certain bacteria, some people have bacteria that are also can be found in healthy people, but are more often found or more abundant, so uh, just higher levels in patients with IBD. 
But you also published a study back in January, didn't you, where you found two previously unknown bacterial strains in people with IBD? Yeah. Yeah, so one of the things we do is we take fecal samples from healthy individuals from various patients groups, and we try to isolate the bacteria that we think are interesting. So in this case, we found a bacterial genus called Alabaculum, and we found that this was more common in patients with IBD. It's not a very strong association, but this was only really found and isolated from these patients. So we identified them, and we're now studying what they do. You did say earlier that it's not really quite clear what effect the sort of different collection of bacteria in the guts of people with IBD does. But if you were to hypothesize on what the effect is, what the impact is of having this very distinct map or collection of bacteria, what would you say? It looks like these bacteria are a little bit more pathogenic than the bacteria that healthy people have. So they're not pathogens like Salmonella or Campylobacter, but they're... They have more bacteria that, for instance, can penetrate more deeply into the mucus layer, or they can dissolve the mucus layer. They can eat away the mucus layer and create sort of their own niche within that layer. Some bacteria even penetrate completely through the mucus layer and attach themselves to the cells where they can secrete various enzymes, uh, toxins that may hurt the, uh, the intestinal cells. So that's, it's a sort of a group of bacteria that they have that looks like they're a little bit more pathogenic than what we actually want. And is that something that could cause or contribute to inflammation as well? Uh, I'm not sure. I don't think this is the only the only reason. I think it's still a combination of uh, multiple factors, but I think this more virulent, more pathogenic microbiome could definitely contribute to the inflammation. That's really interesting. Did you find a difference in the different types of IBD with the types of bacteria you were picking up? So we didn't study that in great detail, but there are definitely studies there that show that Crohn's disease have a different microbiome subset than ulcerative colitis. And again, there is overlap. So the amount of bacteria that people can have is quite a lot and quite diverse. Even in healthy people, you see a lot of diversity within this group. So it's difficult to really pinpoint, but you can definitely say that certain bacteria are, for instance, more enriched in ulcerative colitis. How do you know that, or do you know, whether or not these bacteria came after the first symptoms or before? Because people respond in different ways to, basically it sounds like having gastroenteritis on and off throughout your life. And so you change how you eat, what you drink. Could they not be as a result of changes that people have made in their diet? Yeah, it could definitely be. So I guess this is what still is lacking a little bit in my field. What we really want is a longitudinal study, so following people from health all the way into disease. And of course, this is not easy to do because you, you can't really predict who gets IBD. But it could be that people just pick up these bacteria from the environment. It could be that people change their diets so certain bacteria grow out and start to become problematic. We just really don't know. That's totally fascinating. I was going to turn to Zosha. I was wondering if what Marcel said, if it chimes in with any of your personal experience or if it helps make sense of some of the symptoms that you've had or some of the things that you've gone through. I think to a certain extent, yes. And I've actually done a lot of research on the topic myself. I've been involved with several groups. I have read a few books and especially a lot on the microbiome. I think in the past two years or so, I had a lot of gut issues as well, which originally doctors thought was a, a relapse. Turns out I had small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. So I have been doing a lot of work with targeted probiotics, etc., and helping the motility of my gut and improving scarring in order to reduce some of these symptoms. 
But I think other things is diet and, and exercise, which we touched upon. Since diagnosis, I followed a, a lactose-free diet. Don't really know whether I'm still lactose intolerant, but I've definitely lost the taste for it now after so many years of not eating it. But for me, that was incredibly helpful. And as well, my, my diet is very, I don't like the word clean, but you know, lots of fresh fruit and vegetables. I don't eat meat anymore, a lot of fish, you know, whole grains, etc. And I, I note that I react very badly. I have a very sensitive gut when it comes to different foods. I've just come back from holiday and all the extra oil and all these other things that added to food has just given me a very bad sort of gut symptoms, a lot more constipation, bloating, etc. And I think as well, I'm more sort of, when I've had gastroenteritis or things like this, my gut tends to take a lot longer to recover and need some support. And I think also with the, I've just had shingles, for example, for the third time. So I think being on immunosuppressants as well, obviously makes you more susceptible to getting various things. That's for me why diet is incredibly important. That's a good point to come on to diet. So in episodes earlier this year, we discussed dietary interventions for a range of conditions. And those dietary interventions, such as the Mediterranean diet, in order to change the microbiome to get greater diversity. Now, the Mediterranean diet, as we all know, that relies very heavily on increased fibre intake. And some recent studies have shown that high fibre diet or a diet rich in sugars could actually worsen IBD symptoms. And it sounds like, Joshua, your gut is quite sensitive. What I'm interested in is, well, we know that too much sugar can have bad effects on health, but dietary fibre is often hailed as a healthy component and almost essential for changing microbiome diversity. So Marcel, can I come to you first? What might explain the fact that fibre makes symptoms worse in something where we're talking we've got a, a dysbiosis, an imbalance of the microbiome? We tend to think that fibres are very good. I think in many cases this is indeed true. So fibres are degraded by certain bacterial species into short-chain fatty acids, for instance butyrate, and that is taken up by the intestinal tract, by the cells in the intestinal tract, and that's good. This functions in general as a, an anti-inflammatory. But of course, it all depends on the bacteria that you have and how your intestinal tract reacts to that. So if you don't have the right bacteria, fibers might actually not be that good for you. Maybe you cannot break down these fibers. Yeah, these fibers then may increase your peristalsis. So it's never that black and white. It's always multiple factors that play a role in the intestinal tract. So at least your bacterial makeup in combination with your diet. Yeah. So Joshua, how do you cope with fiber-rich foods like legumes, as lentils, peas, beans? Generally, well, I think for me, there's a very fine balance between having too much and, and too little, both in the ways of, you know, legumes, pulses and vegetables, etc. Too much. And indeed, I get more of sort of a, a looser bowel movement the following morning. Too little and I get constipated. So it's finding that sweet spot between not enough and, and too much. So I was just wondering if there's anything in your research, Marcel, that suggests that dietary interventions can help improve that bacterial balance in the gut, because it does seem that you can, to a point, intervene with diet. Would you also agree that this is true for IBD? I think so. I think aside from antibiotics, I think diet is one of the strongest modifiers of the microbiota, because you, these bacteria need food. And not all bacteria eat the same foods. 
if you eat a lot of sugars, you feed different groups of bacteria within your intestinal tract and they grow out, they expand. If you eat a lot of fibers, you feed different groups of bacteria. So you can definitely modify based on your diet uh, to a certain extent your microbiota composition. The complicated thing is that you, of course, don't really know what you need to modify and that, that is actually very personalized. So we cannot, at least at the moment, say, well, you always need to eat whatever, these type of nuts, uh, lots of fruit, because you don't really know the microbiota composition in these people. So you have to really fine-tune these two things together and, and match both the bacteria and the diet. So one of the things I'm interested in is that one of the mainstays of treatment you mentioned there was antibiotics. And if you take antibiotics, that reduces the diversity of the gut microbiome. And so is the treatment not potentially making things worse? It could be. I think there, again, it's a balance. If you have to take antibiotics and it often works, it works because it lowers the microbial burden, so the amount of bacteria in the intestinal tract. And at that point, when you have these flares, this might actually be a good thing because you just want to get rid of the bacteria that drive this inflammation. In the long term, of course, you want a diverse microbiota and you want a healthy, diverse microbiota. But this is often already not the case in patients with IBD anyways. So then you're sometimes forced with your back against the wall and you have to give antibiotics. But in general, I think it's, of course, not what you want to do. That makes sense. And it also sounds really tough to navigate once again, both, I guess, for the doctors prescribing and for the patients, the people living with this condition. So I'm going to turn to Zosha again, because earlier you mentioned that you found that diet and exercise help you and also that you're currently in remission. And my question is, how have you balanced the treatment prescribed by your doctors and what is that treatment with these lifestyle interventions and what has helped the most? Yeah, so in terms of medication, the only thing that has kept me in remission is biologics. So right now I have infusions every two months of vedolizumab, and since I've been on biologics, I've been in remission. And then in terms of dietary interventions, this has been just kind of a trial and error and I think has changed over the years as my body, I guess, has matured from being a teenager into an adult. But a very well-balanced diet, I, I don't eat sugary processed foods these just really do not agree with me I'm very much into more sort of holistic living I guess so I've done a lot of cognitive behavioral therapy for example because I was suffering with severe anxiety I think as a result of having a strict routine to live by the things now like mindfulness meditation I do every day I journal every morning I very much have a calm period in the morning which sets myself up for the day I exercise five times a week maybe more a combination mostly of weightlifting and cardiovascular as well and I think obviously there's a huge physical benefits of exercise which indeed helps with any abdominal pain sometimes I get but also for me, it's the mental benefits and keeping stress levels low and in check. Thank you. And before we move on to future avenues for treatment and research, do you have any questions for each other, either you, Marcel or Zosia? Yeah. First of all, thank you, Zosia, for being so open. I think this is very useful, particularly for researchers like myself, because we're always one step further sort of removed from the actual patients than doctors themselves. So I was wondering if there was any episode that you remember that triggered your IBD? I think there's two things. One, my father had IBD and I was told that it can be hereditary, although he was diagnosed as an adult and had it much less severe. When I was first diagnosed, I was going through a period of emotional stress, which I was told could have been a trigger. 
And in my last relapse, I got food poisoning, which I was told could have triggered the last relapse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think the way people see it is it's sort of a balance. And if you disturb that balance, either by periods of stress or by food poisoning, you can sort of tip the balance and then it spirals out of control again. So that's, I think, why I'm impressed by what you do to keep everything as stable as possible. So I guess my other question was, you know, you've researched and you've tried various probiotics. How much do you think that benefited you? Honestly, immensely. And it's it's hard to kind of relate to a question I was going to have for, for you, Marcel. But I think probiotics for me have been keen in restoring the good and the bad bacteria that I had in the gut. To this day, I take a multitude of supplements which have immensely helped how my gut functions, motility, etc., regular bowel movements and things like this. Yeah, that, that's great. That's great. So, Joshua, did you have a particular question to Marcel? Yes, I guess it's more of a general question regarding functional versus Western medicine. I've been working with a functional practitioner for the past two years. This was all done privately. I paid for all of this. They did a a stool test, which looked at all the bacteria in my gut, good and bad, which showed a lot of bad bacteria as a result of antibiotics I've been given from the doctors. Low good bacteria, poor motility, low stomach acid. And all these things were causing all these abdominal issues that I was having over the past two years, which doctors thought initially was endometriosis or a relapse of my colitis, which I knew was not the case. Having been through all of this treatment, being diagnosed with small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, taking all these different supplements, more targeted probiotics, the health of my gut is like it's never been before, and as is my health. My question is, what is being done in, I guess, more Western medicine to take that lower level look at indeed the gut, you know, the different types of bacteria that exist in order to help patients with IBD? This is still sort of an underdeveloped area. I think there's a lot to gain in that way. I think one of the issues with probiotics that are now used by people is that they may work for certain people, but they don't work for everybody, which is difficult from a science point of view, because then you don't really have a clear answer. But I think that is looking at it too simplistic. I think we really need to go into a more personalized approach. And for some people, certain probiotics might actually work very well, as you described for yourself. But from a science point of view, there's still not enough evidence to say very clearly that probiotics actually work really well. So I think we are getting better at looking at multiple things, combining all these different areas, for instance, mental health and the microbiome and your intestinal health. But this is still, yeah, the sort of the problem in science is we need very strong evidence before we can say this works and this doesn't work. And often we also need mechanisms. So we need to know how it works, not just that it works, but just also how it works. And this is what we're, we're all working on hard, but yeah, we're not there yet. Mm-hmm. Let's move on to future treatments. Maria, do you want to kick us off? Yeah. What about other stuff in the gut, like immune cells? I think there's some research around gut immune cells and their role in IBD. Do they impact the development of different forms of IBD and can they be in the future harnessed to treat it? Yeah, immune cells definitely play a role in IBD. Those are basically the cells that drive the inflammation, that cause the inflammation. All current treatments are all designed to either limit the amount of immune cells or at least limit their inflammatory function. So for instance, anti-TNF, 
they stop this inflammatory molecule TNF that can drive the inflammation. So if that is removed by the drug, you basically silence these immune cells a little bit. So you talked about probiotics. What about going the other end and fecal transplants to avoid that? What? <laughs> yes, it's like, it's kind of, it's a tube. Um, so what's your feeling about fecal transplants for IBD? There's a lot of studies that are now investigating the effect of fecal transplants into IBD. I think fecal transplants work, so microbiota transplantations work really well with certain disorders, so C. diff expansion, clostridioides difficile, which is a bacteria that can grow out in, in the intestinal tract after you get lots of antibiotics. That's basically one bacteria that colonizes your intestinal tract, and if you then do these fecal microbiota transplantations, you restore often the diversity in the intestinal tract, and you push down the amount of this one bacteria, and then your balance is restored. So that's where someone has got a C. difficile infection and it's an ongoing gastroenteritis and then you give them a faecal transplant for someone without that. Yeah. Now, why do you think it wouldn't work with IBD? Is it because it's more complex? Exactly. I think the results are very mixed there. I think there might be some positive results in ulcerative colitis for Crohn's. I think it was a little bit less positive. It has various reasons. First, it's not one bacteria that you want to push out, but it's a, still a quite complex microbiota. So you again get to the point of colonization resistance. So there's already an existing microbiota and you give them a new one. There's only room for one, I would say. So you get sort of a weird mixture. Uh, some will stick, some won't stick. You don't really know which ones will stick. You cannot predict that. So you also can't really predict whether this transplant will work or not, whether it has beneficial effects. There's anecdotal evidence that people after a transplant get into remission and stay in remission, but this is still very early on. I think at least we need to know a little bit better which bacteria in IBD you actually want to get rid of and target those bacteria more specifically. Mm. Joshua, is this something you've looked into? Uh, it's not, but I have heard about it. <laughs> Would you do it? Um. If needed to, yes, because I've now become, the, I was told my last relapse, steroid resistant, which is obviously a main form of treatment. So the next step for me has always been surgery. And, as, you know, if that could be avoided by having fecal transplant, then, uh, yeah, I would be interested. Okay. I think that's a good place to finish thinking about potential future treatments. But Joshua, tell us how you feel about having IBD now. And what would you say to someone who's newly diagnosed? I would say that my mum has always said to me, if I could take this from you, I would. And I say to her, no, don't. Because I truly believe that it's made me a stronger person physically, emotionally, mentally, that I'm much healthier than the average person, that I live a life which is wholesome, both in terms of my physical body, but my emotional state. And also it's led me to be able to help other people through uh, struggling with a chronic illness doesn't need to be IBD it could be anything else there's a lot of powerful work that I'm doing at the company that I work for right up to leadership level in order to help build a more inclusive corporate environment there's a lots of positive that comes and I know that at the time of diagnosis or when you're struggling it is scary but there is light at the end of the tunnel and you will come out a stronger person I think that's just an important message to get across to to your listeners so thank you, Joshua Krajewska and Dr. Marcel Deserter, for a fascinating discussion. And Maria Kuhut, 
Thank you for tackling this subject with me. Thank you, everyone, for the amazing discussion. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Sasha, I just want to say uh, good luck with your health. Thank you, Miss Allen. Good luck with your research, too. I'll keep myself posted. <laughs> Thank you. We'll be back again next month. Hit that subscribe or follow button so you don't miss out. I'm Dr. Hilary Geit, and this is a Hivers Radio production for Medical News Today. Thank you.